We are all educators for our closest communities, our friends, our family, our colleagues, even without us realizing that. Take the responsibility and just become these lighthouses of hope for their own um, closest friends and family and um, and just get better communicators. Um, uh, realize that all of us come from different perspectives and be authentic, be humble and be be empathetic to, to each other. Welcome to Life with Bitcoin, where we focus on the personal transformation through the lens of Bitcoin. I'm your host, Vivian. Thanks for tuning in. If you like and want to support our mission on shining light on the human side of Bitcoin, we'd really appreciate your support with some comments and some stats on platforms like Geyser and Fountain. Looking forward to hearing from you. Today, our guest is Dusan Matuska, Bitcoin educator and the founder of Amity Age, an education organization that's not only educating about Bitcoin, but more importantly, educating the Bitcoin educators. Dusan, welcome. Thanks for joining today. Thank you, Vivian. Pleasure to be here. I heard you're from Slovakia. Um, it's a place I know almost nothing about, really. What was it like growing up there? Um, it was pretty chilled out. Um, you know, we are a country that was previously in Soviet uh, Union, part of Soviet Union. Um, so uh, after, you know, in 90s, everything like sprung up and the, the capitalism came. But my upbringing was pretty cool. Um, my parents were chilled out. So I enjoyed, I, I started doing sailing very soon in my life when I was 11 and I'm sailing since then. So for 20 years, so my teenage years were all about sailing competitions across the Europe. And um, so I have, I had a pretty, pretty good and fun uh, childhood there. And before you become a Bitcoin educator, you were already very much in the realm of education, teaching math, English and physics. So do you think there were something about education itself that clicked with you as a person? Uh, it really was. And uh, I started doing education um, and teaching others when I was about 17, 18 years old. So I was teaching my classmates. I was I was doing uh, these one-on-one tutorings for them, both, mostly uh, math and, and physics and English. So and I remember when, you know, parents started to call me to teach their kids that were like 10, 11 and they told me that, well, you know, my kid, uh, it doesn't have genes on mathematics. So please just uh, come and help him at least to pass an exam. I'm that kid. And when I, when I, ki- <laughs> one more time, you're the kid. Yeah, I'm, the, I'm that kid. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the truth is what I find out, what I found out was that when I met with a kid and I especially remember one, one boy. He was like, yeah, you know, math is not my thing. But after like maybe 30 minutes of talking, I did kind of like diagnostics and I understood it's not about him. It's mostly about uh, the attitude of the teacher. So he was always telling them, oh, you will study this at home. And he was super fast. He didn't care about if kids are getting it. So this young boy, he just fall like fall out of the math when they were doing fractions and everything else just he couldn't keep up. So when we figured it out and we solved that little thing, suddenly he became very confident and like, wow, it's not that difficult. It's not about the genes. It's about the proof of work. So he started to do exercises himself in home. And uh, But the most amazing part for, for me was that his parents started to treat him differently with more respect. And suddenly they saw it's about the work that the kid put in. It's not about the genes. So these were the moments where I figure out like, wow, I want to have these feelings or, or give these gifts much more time and then see this change in kids happening. So I started to do tutoring since then. And uh, during my university studies as well, this was my main job. So I was tutoring kids from eight years old all the way to university students. And I just fall in love with education in general. And how does that translate to Bitcoin? How did you transition from being a tutor and a teacher to a Bitcoin educator? So, um, I, I always had in my blood, you know, the, the, the craving for freedom. Um, when I was 16, we started to ship some headphones from, from China and we're selling them for 10 times the price in Slovakia. You know, we get it from like $5 and selling them for 50. And, uh, so I always try to figure out, you know, these hustles and, uh, and, and kind of how to not be dependent on some nine to five job and how to really like, be free to do what I want to do. 
And, um, and I also studied a little bit of, of uh, IT when I was in a, in a high school. So I was in an IT class. I wanted to be a developer, but um, in the third grade, I had a huge argument with my IT teacher. So uh, then I said, I will not do IT never in my life. <laughs> so I went to an economics class and, and uh, University of Economics and Management. So I always had this kind of craving for freedom, for technologies. And in 2015, I first heard about Bitcoin. I was okay. It's a scam. I was super skeptical. So I just forgot about it for two years. And then in 2017, it came again through my friend who I trusted a lot. And I said, okay, Peter, so you're into this scam. So, you know, tell me why. And just, uh, I want to find what is wrong about that. And he started to explain me more about how Bitcoin can help really in the countries where there's high inflation rates, where the economies are crumbling and uh, the people are unbanked. And I was very, very interested by that. So that day, that night, I came home and I started to study anything I can find about Bitcoin. And I really kept studying for hours and I realized that it's 3 a.m. already and I need to go to sleep. So uh, the next day I called my my guys in a company and I told the guys I'm not going to uh, to work this time and uh, for maybe a few days and I will just keep studying Bitcoin. And that's how it started. And very soon I realized, you know, I want to spread the knowledge as much as I can. So it feels like you're pretty certain which path you're going to walk on in the realm of Bitcoin is, is education. Because oftentimes people come in the space and then they are Bitcoiners and they think, oh, how can I contribute to space? And oftentimes that's not education. Like sometimes they choose to work in a Bitcoin company where they want to build products around Bitcoin, like wallets, layers. Did it come really intuitive for you that you want to become a Bitcoin educator in the first place? Or you just kind of stumble yes. upon that path? Well, it came very naturally. And uh, since I didn't have such a knowledge in coding, I, I cannot code. And um, basically, the only thing I could I could I could do was was uh, education, and I love it. So um, so it was very quickly that I, I figured out like I want to teach Bitcoin. And uh, and as Bitcoiners are saying, you know, I'm going to die on this hill. So there's basically nothing else that I, I would love to do. I, I actually gave up my company at a time because we started when I was 20, we started a construction company. We were building outdoor workout parks, um, building, you know, kids playgrounds and, and all of that. Um, and uh, we, we did it in 2014 and in 2017 and 18, I decided like, okay, I'm going to pass it to my colleagues um, so they can continue. And, uh, and I decided that I want to go full-time into Bitcoin education. And I bet from your experience teaching math and physics, which is already which is uh, kind of Bitcoin is about. There's really math heavy. Um, and then just teaching in general, I'm sure there's a lot of techniques and practical things you could do to ensure better learning outcome. So do you have specific examples of where you picked up certain tricks from your early days of teaching math and physics, translating into something that's very effective when you teach Bitcoin? Maybe about like the, the soft skill of teaching. And this is where I feel that... Uh... Um, I would love to help other Bitcoin teachers um, or Bitcoiners if they want to become educators, um, how to teach more efficiently, how to simplify concepts, how to find analogies. So um, it was very like for kids that were struggling with math, it was very important to simplify as much as you can to, to give them some analogies, how they can see what the fraction is about, how the function works, how to I don't know, calculate derivations and to give them some, some kind of ways to, 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 to put it to use, like where they can, where they might use it in future. So connect it to something useful. And I believe this is also that, uh, what translated into Bitcoin for me is trying as much as I can to, first of all, explain people why Bitcoin matters, uh, instead of just jumping into the, the technicalities and the details and trying to tell them everything in the in the first session because it's going to overwhelm them. So kind of not be overwhelming and, and doing it step by step. I think that's what I learned. And throughout the years, have you have you always been a communication expert? Were you someone who was very good at communication in the first place, in the very beginning as a kid, or you acquired that skill growing up somehow? Um, I think as a kid, I, I managed to get out of many situations just by by speaking. <laughs> so I not get punched 
that much when I was a kid and uh, I managed to save my ass a couple of times just by communication. <laughs> so like as a kid, when I was kind of uh, outside of the cool kids community, um, I had like the feeling that I want to um, fall in or like be part of the cool kids. Right. So I had this big struggle to being liked, to being uh, um, part of the group. And this made me, you know, uh, listen to music that I didn't like, but it was cool to listen to them, like rap songs, because in my hometown, we had this most famous rapper in Slovakia was kind of from my hometown. So I was listening to that, even though I didn't like that. I was wearing this hip hop clothes. I had this uh, very crazy hair hairstyle that every every morning I was ironing my hair before I went to school. And uh, I imagine, I remember one day that this iron kind of broke down. And it didn't work. And I didn't go to school that morning because of it, because I couldn't go with just my natural hair. So it was crazy. I really wanted to kind of be part of the group. So like the personal development of realizing and, and, and trying to figure out my own self-value helped me a lot uh, during those years. And, uh, and I remember situations where we got like we were walking, I remember with a friend Uh, walking in the in the park you know we were a bit drunk um so but i was still a teenager so don't tell anybody and and he was saying something in german because i don't know from some movies or whatever and then like a group of guys just came in and they want to kind of fight us and it was just me and him and there were like maybe five guys just randomly trying to have a fight in the park And this guy, he just kind of left, just he was so drunk, just he just keep walking and, and these guys just surrounded me. And and then somehow, I don't know exactly what I said, but it was more like uh, trying to make friends with them or trying to kind of be cool and, and like, you know, uh, getting myself out of it. And in the end, I told them like, yeah, if they want to fight, like there is a club close to here and and there are some fights happening so they can go there. And they were in the end, they were kind of happy that I point them, point them to a direction where they can really fight. So it was crazy. Um, so, so yeah, I was this kind of guy that I was skinny and small. So I just really cannot do a proper fight. So I needed to find a way to get out of it with words. Wow. Because sometimes we acquire certain skills due to necessity, right? And, and mm. we, we get ourselves in situations where we have to get out of Um, and then with, with a pressure, we perform, um, sometimes it's just, you have to get back in that corner to develop a part of yourself that you didn't wear aware that you have. Now that you're a Bitcoiner, there are certain lifestyle that come with it. Are you among the no chair club? Like, do you have a chair at, at home <laughs> and how adapting Bitcoin changed your lifestyle or spending habits in any way? I was not a, like a huge spender in my life in general. Um, I was brought up in a family where we really like weren't too rich. Uh, we were kind of like a, let's say middle class. Um, and I was thought by my parents to be um, humble in a sense or like not to spend too much. So I, I think I'm keeping this uh, right now as well. Um, and I'm, I'm not in favor of just like not having a chair and having this ascetic lifestyle as well. I think that you never know when the life ends for any weird reasons. So kind of me being super ascetic, um, it's not the way that I want to feel like I want to enjoy the life as well. Uh, I rather spend money on, on experiences. So traveling and meeting new like people going to countries other than material stuff. So uh, I save in Bitcoin or my salary is in Bitcoin basically. So I have not, no other income than Bitcoin. And it gave me the the low time preference perspective as well. I'm actually quite worried in in that sense because we now we see a lot of Bitcoiners who don't own a chair specifically. Like it's it's not about. Um, I'm sure more, most people don't go to that extent, but we see this narrative where if you have a chair, you're not you know stacking enough sats, and you want to maximize your your savings and be really frugal. And in a way, that's fair like i get that but i i also see the flip side of the risk of it is that we want to be low time preference and really think into the future but at the same time like us humans now like now is all, all we have in a way because if we start to assume to have the things that we don't yet have then this is what i've witnessed as well in my own life if we start to assume The thing to have the things that we we don't already have, then there's a chance that we'll suffer 
the sense of loss, and that's terrible for things that we don't have in the first place. And it's just terrible to witness. And I always try to remind myself of the balance of how do I balance the the power of now and then the the being a good Bitcoiner, be low time preference and success for the future. Because um, I'm sure there are people who are giving up on certain things today to to in order to save. Like some people choose to not have a wedding because they want to save. Some people choose to not go on that vacation or not go to certain things to create these memories with their loved ones um, instead of spending stacking sets. And I totally get that. Um, and I do that too. But I just want to encourage everybody to think on the flip side of how can we, how should we utilize Bitcoin? Because in the end, for me, Bitcoin is a vehicle. It's, it's not the destination. We're, we're, we're humans at the end of the day. And then we need to love and connect. Um, and Bitcoin helps us to do that instead of preventing us to do that. I think that's the bottom line. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, and I also see these narratives all around. Uh, what I try to do is to listen to myself and really what resonates with me. Because uh, as I told you, like in the past, when I was a, a teenager, I was mostly trying to fit in. And, uh, and sometimes I feel like these narratives are pulling a lot of people that they want to also fit in into this Bitcoin tribe. And they want to kind of be like, that guy or this girl or whoever, and they they go against themselves. So uh, for me, like the Bitcoin brought a topic of uh, low time preference much more to to clarity or to my view, uh, where I'm much more thanks to Bitcoin on the scale of the low time preference. But I still want to keep myself as I feel that this is me and not going to extreme where I will be just doing it for like, oh, just to be a good Bitcoiner so somebody can tap me on the shoulder like, yes, you're stacking hard enough. I feel like um, I have skills that I can, even if I lose all my Bitcoin, even if like shit hits the fan, I can still maintain my um, income. Even if I, you know, if, if my company um, goes bankrupt, which, you know, can happen, of course, for any company, I feel like the skill I, skills I acquired are sellable on the market and I still can keep my like some kind of way of living on the life standard. So I'm not very afraid of, of all of that. So I don't need to stack that hard because if if I will not like suddenly I, I'm going to die in a couple of months. Um, so yeah, kind of like a, a common sense to everything is is kind of my my way to go. We have a idiom in Chinese. Uh, it's, it's called Kai Yuan Jie Liu. Basically, it means how do people preserve wealth? There, there are two ways. Kai Yuan means you want to open up new revenues from different channels. So you want to have more channels of those. And then Jie Liu, it means uh, that's the saving part. That's cutting down your cost. Kind of a two liver thing. It's, it's not just, just saving and saving and saving. And then we should also think about how do we how do we as Bitcoiners um, figure out how else we can make money, how else we can generate an income, either from in, in the fiat standard or in Bitcoin, either to start a side hustle of some sorts or help out in the Bitcoin community one way or another, and then slowly have that exposure to financial outcome. So I think these, these things are important, increasingly important as we go. And these are always important topics to think about as Bitcoiners. But Another thing on the and on the education side, the realm you choose to be in, I think it's it's like I'm a big fan of karma. Um, in a way, like I like to think about things around karma. I like to talk about it. And if you think about um the area of education, it brings so there's so much good karma in it because you're because you're teaching people and you're introducing them to something that's completely new and different and change their life perspective for the better. Uh, and that's literally changing lives. And oftentimes you don't know it. Um, oftentimes it takes years to manifest um, per se, but it's a it's it's an industry where it's a, a space that has a lot of good karma and positive energy. No, that's true. That's true. And once you see the kids getting it and and enjoying that and and learning new stuff, uh, you just it's also in a kind selfish like you feel good about about that and and you feel that you're helping a lot of people as well. So yesterday we had a class here in Roatan for digital privacy of kids. So we are starting a new program here. Um, it's like a four-week 
a program related to how to stay safe online. And, uh, and there were like a lot of interaction from the kids. They were sharing stories from their friends and family, how they get scammed or their uh, social media accounts got hacked. So, so they were really like getting the whole point of it and understanding the concepts. When I teach Bitcoin diploma here in Rotan and I see people and like the kids getting what is inflation, how money is created and they have these aha moments. I feel like this one aha moment can have like a profound change in their lives, how they're going to treat themselves in future, how they're going to trade their, their energy and, and limited time they have for money that's being you know, printed out of thin air. And, uh, and it can create these ripple effects like the, the, the butterfly effect. You know, you just did, you just do one class here in Roatan in one school and you never know which kid can bring such a huge change to Honduras, to Roatan or somewhere else in the world thanks to that little thing. And they, they even not realize it years after that. But this feeling gives me like a huge power and huge uh, energy to like keep on doing that. That's amazing. That's really amazing. And before we jump on the next topic, do you mind if I just quickly close that door? So you're 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 now a Bitcoin educator who focus on educating Bitcoin educators. That was a mouthful. So first things first, <laughs> what is your definition of a Bitcoiner? How, in your opinion, how does people qualify as Bitcoiner? Is that when their Bitcoin balance is not zero or it has to be more? <laughs> um, that's a very good question. And uh, I can say by the talks with people and by the discussions that who I feel is a Bitcoiner and is not. And I don't know if I can tell like really like the characteristics, but in general, it's fit, it fits into a category like the people who I feel like Bitcoiners they love to talk about deeper topics that normally we don't have time to talk about, just like what is value? What is, what does it mean? Um, what, what is money? How money, money is created and what's the, the source of money, how money is being treated, it's like kind of like these deeper topics that you don't have time to think about. Uh, Bitcoiners for me are people who, who also care about um, the good of the others in a sense of like, a lot of Bitcoiners I really met that I would like, this is a Bitcoiner. They're, they are very generous and sharing their knowledge, helping out. So they are mostly educators in their own sense. If they are developers, they teach the others how to code. If they are business people, they, they help others to set up their own businesses. So a lot of Bitcoiners I met are like people who really want to help out and, and, and spread and just share what they, what they learned. Um, people who, who also... Um, yeah, they're, they're mostly, um, entrepreneurs. So they want to do things their own way. Um, they, they love, um, um, they're like self-confident in a positive way. They, they value themselves. Um, they treat their time, um, very valuably and they, they don't, Kind of, they are not stuck in a conversations about like gossips of the others. They mostly discuss ideas and not people. Um, they they know how to say no to things. They don't they don't mind refusing opportunities. So they they value their own time much better than the people who are not Bitcoiners. So kind of these are the the personal elements and characteristics and traits that I see in Bitcoiners. So in for me, it's not about the stack that you have. Uh, or how much you take from your salary and put into Bitcoin or how many memes you create online. Or if you, I don't know, if you're tweeting every day, um, it's more about like the personal trades. When I talk with a person where I feel I resonate and like, this is a, this is a Bitcoiner I really appreciate and that person that really gets it. So in that sense, you can really be a Bitcoiner and not know it. And that's, you can be a, yes. right. Totally. Exactly. And this is what I told a lot of people when I, when I had them on classes, like I can tell kind of quickly, like who is a Bitcoiner already without knowing that he's a Bitcoiner. Yeah. It's like, I say like, we are all anarchists, but we don't know about that because I had never met a person that loves if somebody's telling them what to do or kind of having power over them and, and telling them like they are the one in charge and they have more privileges than, than, than themselves. So 
in the end, we we all are in a sense, but uh, it's somewhere it, it's the level of depth uh, under with which you have it inside of you. That's that's the difference. Uh, and I I think with Bitcoiners, it's kind of the same. People love the freedom, but some of them are not yet willing to fight for it and and just get it. Um, but maybe later in their lives, or if something happens to them or their family, they suddenly just this. Bitcoinerism being released out of them, but some of them are really are very close to becoming Bitcoiner without them knowing that. And uh, I love this feeling, or like, I love these interactions when I have these people in classes, on these like one on ones, like the beginners classes. And I'm like, oh yeah, man, like you will you will get it immediately, and you will appreciate it so much. You mentioned that there, there are people who will become Bitcoiners through through pain. And you are someone who personally became a Bitcoiner because of your curiosity. So I think that's two of the major kind of avenues where people come from into the world of Bitcoin, either through pain or curiosity. And do you, so what are, so what, what is the difference? What are some of the differences through these two approaches? And do you see, um, either from your experience for, or just, as a thought experiment, do you think there are any other, any distinctive behaviors that people have when they're exposed to Bitcoin with different approaches? Meaning that if they are, you know, into Bitcoin with, for fear, how do they view or approach life differently compared to someone who become a Bitcoiner through curiosity? Very profound question. Um, what I see, because I'm, let's say from the first world country, um, we don't have an economy crumbling right now in Slovakia, although the government right now, it's like crazy there. Um, but we have, you know, banks everywhere. Everybody's offering you cards. So when you look at the concept of finance in Slovakia, things are working kind of well. So you're right. I came from the avenue of curiosity. I had the privilege to have time to learn slowly and just to consume and test and, and all of that. I made a lot of mistakes. I sent the transaction, my first transaction I sent, I spent 150 euros on a transaction fee because in my Cilium wallet, there was this weird and stupid button to use all remaining funds as a mining fee. Oh. I don't know why it was there. And right. so that was my first Bitcoin I bought, 200 euros as a student. So for me, it was a big money at the time. Wow. And I was sending from my Cilium to somewhere on an exchange or I don't know where. And the 150 euros was just gone. And I was like, fuck it. You know, I'm, I'm done with Bitcoin. This is stupid. So I done a bunch of bad stuff, bad mistakes. But I, I had the privilege to, you know, to do these mistakes. But for example, uh, I was in Salvador last year in November on adopting Bitcoin and I was in El Sonte and I went to pay for like this $3 of pineapple cup and I pulled up my wallet of Satoshi. I was chatting with a friend. So the lady showed me a QR code. I scanned it casually, sent the transaction and I didn't see that it was an on-chain transaction. And at the time, you know, with all this ordinal shit, uh, the, the fees were booming. So I paid $35 of a fee for $2 or $3 worth of pineapple cup. For a lot of people that are like trying to stack uh, $1 by $1 and this would happen to them, they would be like, you know, this Bitcoin, like they would throw it out of the window and just like never touch touch back to it. So coming to a, to a different perspective and people getting to Bitcoin out of uh, necessity or over pain, um, I think they, are, they don't have so much time to learn. They are kind of forced to it and they are basically grabbing anything they can. Mostly in these countries, there are not so many resources or not so many educators to help them out. So this is actually why, why I set up the Bitcoin Educators Academy to help bring more Bitcoin educators into the space and just enlarge the whole net network of the educators to become like a safety net when the shit hits the fan and, and uh, people are forced to learn about Bitcoin. Um, so I think in these countries, it's much more like whatever tool they find, they get in, they somehow, you know, they use mostly custodial wallets because when you're just getting to Bitcoin, you don't have all the knowledge of how to maintain channels on Lightning and, and all of the things. So people are entering with the necessity over pain and maybe they don't choose the best tools. Um, and there are much more risks for them. Maybe they don't have so much financial literacy and they fall into scams, which happens in bull runs. So uh, 
so yeah, I think this is the difference. And um, but sadly, I think most of the people coming to Bitcoin um, will come, or I think came already through pain uh, in countries where their economy is really crumbling and they they try to you know save themselves. So um, I would love with all the activities that uh, that we are doing, I would love to bring more people out of curiosity sooner than they would need to be forced by pain. Yeah, totally. I was reading a book and it was talking about how and when people pursue change. And unfortunately, it's it's not because of unhappiness almost, it's because of discomfort. Uh, people, we as humans, we are naturally gravitating towards comfort and this was in our genes. And oftentimes pain is comfort for us and the status quo, even if we are, you know, we're not happy in it. Um, this is comfort for us. And this is why we see people kind of be in a unhealthy relationship, not because they're, they're enjoying it because it's comfort, because it's something that they know. And the flip side of uncertainty is more scary and people will only change when the discomfort of not changing is greater than the discomfort of changing. And for people who are in developed countries or countries where the, the financial side of things haven't gone so bad, then the status quo is comfort. The, the, they know that something's wrong, but to, to change the alternative, to be open-minded enough to go down the rabbit hole, um, that's that takes a lot of extra effort. And that's more um, uncomfortable than staying in the status quo, even though something's wrong. The sooner we bring people onto the Bitcoin standard through the root of the more hopeful we can be. Right. And the more the less cynical uh, Bitcoiners as a group will be compared to if they they come onto the Bitcoin standard through pain. What are some of the common questions, most common questions you get from people who are not yet into Bitcoin? And do you get a sense of where do they pick up these impressions? So here in Honduras, um, you know, we live in Prospera, which is this private city in, in Honduras. And uh, there is kind of the tension between the local government and Prospera, because the Prospera is basically a private city uh, with its own rules and it's showing to the government how things can be done more efficiently uh, with a lower budget in the end uh, where government doesn't like competition so uh, and and a lot of marketing is done from the central government approach against Prospera against these private cities there are three of them in Honduras three ZS it's called zone of economic development in, and employment and uh, and somehow people also connect a little bit the Bitcoin and Prospera. So we also need to tackle these issues. Like So, so people get a lot of bad marketing of, of Bitcoin through uh, media, through through the, the talks of the governments and just, you know, the, the socialists blaming the capitalists. Um, that's one thing. And there were a lot of scams here on the island and in, in Honduras as well, where people fall into it and they thought like, oh, that was Bitcoin. It had something to do with crypto and they just put a brand or like the slap the label of Bitcoin and suddenly they are kind of like turned turned off by that. So it requires a lot of uh, explanation, a lot of like uh, understanding their situation, where they are coming from and not being forceful, but being more understandable and a lot of empathy um, to understand their situation. You know, it's it's me, I'm the alien coming to their country, so I cannot force them like you need to do it this way. Um, I'm still learning about Honduras. I'm still learning new things and understanding the culture. So uh, I try to be humble in this sense and and uh, figure out how I can communicate better with them and and how I can demystify the myths, um, how I can kind of go over the objections, handle the objections in a in a much more empathetic way than just uh, a lot of people that I see in Bitcoin space where you know. They're just, you know, you don't get it. I don't care. Just, you know, or you touch some, some shit coin before, like, you know, fuck you. And I don't talk to you anymore. Um, I try to understand where the people come from and, and uh, try to kind of keep them helping hand when I see that they really are curious, they want to learn. But uh, this is kind of like the biggest issue for me as well. The biggest obstacle in a sense. And the, the, the topic that I'm thinking about a lot is that, is it in Slovakia? Is it here? Like anywhere else? There, I would love to have you know full classes all the time. People coming to want to learn about Bitcoin because you know we can do all the 
taking you from, from zero all the way to advanced Bitcoiner, but figuring out how to make sure that people want to learn about Bitcoin without the pain aspect. I don't want to always just show them the pain aspect. I don't want to always just remind them how sh- things are bad, uh, but this obviously like, works a lot. I would love to get them curious without shilling them the price increase and not selling them these huge promises of becoming millionaires. So defining the common, the, the middle ground, um, that's kind of the toughest, how you can kind of awake a Bitcoiner out of them. Um, that's a, still a journey for me. That's so true because I have mixed feelings about introducing people to Bitcoin through FOMO. Um, cause at the end of the day, it's, it's a fear, right? And I'm always, I've always been wondering, like, how can we bring people onto Bitcoin without making them fear for things? Cause nobody likes to fear for things. Um, and this is kind of what I do here at this podcast is I want to share with people that how I want to showcase Bitcoiners' lives. I want to showcase and answer the question or at least explore the question of what it's like to live as a Bitcoiner. And if people, enough people to see, oh, like this group of people who are Bitcoiners, whatever that means, they seem to have, they seem to be healthier. They seem to have um, better connections. Um, they seem to feel more loved and happier and freer. Like what, what, what are they up to? And I want to be that person. And maybe by learning about Bitcoin, I can be that person too. What are some of the common mistakes you see among Bitcoin educators when they're trying to get people orange-pilled? The tendency I see within Bitcoin educators or Bitcoiners is like, if there is an objection, um, they try to fight it. They try to, they, they will get into this, um, let's say, a battlefield mode where there, it's, it's argument against argument. So a lot of Bitcoiners that I met, they want to get better in argumentation, better in like having more data in their hands and just like just spraying the data on the other party. Like, oh, I won this argument because I have I have better data. But in the end, I I don't feel like this is the right approach and it's helping because most of the people got they will just agree with you, but they will close down and uh, they will still have their own truth. And you don't help them to see it differently. So um, there is this kind of framework that, that I'm doing on these classes that the argumentation should be the step number three, not the first one. So you should have a great argument. You should understand the technology. You should understand the economics. But this will come as a step three. The step number one is basically to understand what the person is really objecting to. Because most of the time you have an assumption that, oh, the person is objecting to this thing and you start to counter-argument that, but the person is on a complete different level or a complete different um, area of of the whole argument. So that should be like the first thing where you should spend a lot of time to really get to a deep understanding of what the person is really saying, what's the fear behind it. And, and what the person is really objecting to, because every objection is basically you're, you're trying to show the person a different thing, a different point of view, and you want them to change something, change a habit, change an attitude, change, a, change an idea. And as you said before, you know, we don't like change in general. Like we like, love the comfort. We love the comfort zone. Our brains are trained with evolution and all the millions of years to, to stay in the, in the, in the way of comfort. So anything, and you're, if you're bringing the topic of Bitcoin, it's so this like it's it's so different, it's so disruptive to a lot of ideas that people hold that it's very natural that they will object. So I try to encourage educators and and speakers and and Bitcoiners in general that it's good that people are objecting because it says that they care, they're willing to risk not agreeing with you and coming out. So I love when I have a class and and people are raising hands and objecting. I love it because that shows me a feedback that shows that people care because if they just will not raise their hand and they just leave the class, I think like, perfect, I did a great job. But then they will not start using Bitcoin. Why? Because somewhere in the middle of the session, they disconnected and they were like, you know, um, damn, I I, I don't get it. I'm, I'm not in favor or whatever, some environmental issues or... Um, I know concerns about uh, terrorism or money laundering. They will not tell it to you, and uh, and you lost them. So the understanding is the first element. 
And, and then in the second part is basically the acceptance of, um, of the, of the objection. The acceptance doesn't mean agreeing with the objection because sometimes the objection might be stupid objectively. Uh, so some educators are afraid to accept the objection because they feel like they would agree, but it's not the same thing. So to accept the objection is basically, um, telling that person that they are not stupid for what they are saying because it might have some value in it. It might have something that they really, um, it's really relevant, right? Because they, they are coming from different plays, they're coming from different culture, they have different experience. So to understand it first and to accept and acknowledge the objection, and then the person basically, because the objection comes from the amygdala response, right? right? They are, you cannot speak neocortex to, to, to them because they are in this reptile brain mode and you try to give them facts, but they are, they are completely in a different spot. So first you need to bring it down so the neocortex speak to neocortex. If you're not there, you can have a ton of amazing arguments, but they will not stick. So, so this is kind of a very soft skill thing, and it's very counterintuitive. But me personally, um, we work like this or we communicate like this with my girlfriend. We are together for five years, and in five years, we never had any argument, like none. Not in a, not even a single one. Why? Because we, every time something comes up, we first of all, we, un, we try to understand each other. Where do we come from? And, and most of the time, the whole argument is gone in a matter of seconds because we understand like, oh, but we're coming from the same thing and we want the same thing. So there's nothing to argue about. So we don't, we don't have assumption, presumptions about what the other person wanted to say. Or we try to really look at from at the argument or at the objection from the perspective of the other and, and realize where they come from. So in the end, we almost never get to this argumentation of like raising the voice because raising the voice in, in partnership, in, in, in relationship, it's basically you don't feel listened to, you don't feel heard. So that's why you want to raise your voice because you want to kind of break the barrier of, um, of the other person, like not like speaking something different, like objecting or argumenting a different thing completely. And you feel like, dude, you don't hear me. So you're trying to raise your voice. And then where the argument comes up and the other person is raising the voice and, and it's gone. Sometimes we get personal when we handle objections. And we see that the journey of us Bitcoiners finding Bitcoin is a journey of forego our ego. But I do, on the flip side, see the risk of once we become a Bitcoiner, we sort of form a new ego of that feeling of, oh, I know better, right? And that can carry through when you're, when we're trying to talk to people about Bitcoin. And then when we start to handle objections, I think that analytical part, the, the part of us have gone through the rabbit hole, putting in these hours, acquire all these knowledge, acquire this new perspective in life that we naturally think, oh, I know better. And that will shine through. And then we end up becoming a little, um, condescending in, in a way um, to other people and that's that's not gonna that's gonna that's not gonna be effective we should all be very careful when we talk to people about bitcoin and we cannot assume that we know better you shared this um process where handling objection and actually forming arguments is actually the third step whereas before that you need to do uh, clarification and you need to actually listen to and receive people's argument before you make up your own argumentation so just for the sake of demonstration and uh, so we can see your approach in action although i'm probably totally gonna clickbait it so just for the sake of demonstrating your process um i'm here saying that no everybody in society should to celebrate Valentine's Day. Either they're, you know, single or, or not. And your argument is we as a society should cancel Valentine's Day altogether. So if you were to convince me this should be the case, by using your method, how would you approach it? <laughs> okay, so um so yeah, I'm I'm completely for uh canceling the Valentine's Day and I I think uh, we should do it. I know you can you can counter argue. But why um you don't you think there should be a day where lovers can celebrate their relationships and have a great time mm, so you're saying that uh when we wouldn't have a, a valentine's day people cannot uh, take the time to um 
kind of have a have a nice relationships and nice romantic、uh, dates together. Well, they can, but it's nice to have a dedicated day where everybody's doing it, and then you kind of soak in that atmosphere.、Um, and it's just more occasions for us to celebrate love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I agree with that, and、uh, I thought the same. I thought the same before.、Um, Before I, I realized、uh, how Valentine's Day is is ruining our economy and、uh, and putting pressure on a lot of people during this just one day,、um, so I'm I'm completely I was thinking the same thing before before I realized everything that's behind、uh, the Valentine's Day. But what I try to do uh, is um, to come with like completely understanding your point because、uh, I might felt the same way before. So this is what what I try to teach educators. For example, in the second stage of、uh, the accepting the the argument, it's if you had the same thing or if you had the same、um, conviction or idea before you learned about Bitcoin. So, for example, you, you thought like it's、uh, it's going to ruin our environment or it's only for、um, for criminals. And if you really felt it that way, you shouldn't be afraid to acknowledge it as well, because. This way, you show to people that the person is not alone. They are not stupid for thinking that, because there's a bunch of other people who think who thinks the same way. So they are not alone. Or you thought the same way before. So we shouldn't be afraid to show that we used to think something like that, and it's not wrong to think that. And then you open up、uh, a topic for showing why Bitcoin is not going to ruin our environment. And then the third part of the argumentation is coming, right? Where you should have the data in the end. Right, so this is because one of the approaches to handling the objection is like acknowledging if you had it the same before, just say it out loud. This is interesting because even though you're, it's, it's a short exercise, but I can already learn from this. You are, you're trying to convince me, but you're co- constantly agreeing with me, and you're you're making me feel that oh, we're on the same side, and. It's it's interesting how you say that oh this is what I used to think and then you change their mind and then I get intrigued of oh okay so you agree with me before but you change your mind but how did you change your mind then then the curiosity aspect I start to realize so exactly as you said like the agreeing is one part but I try to I I always tell the educators on the sessions like you shouldn't agree with something that you really don't agree with、mm. so in the whole sentence in the whole. Argument or objection. If there is something to agree with, definitely do it.、Um, but it it really needs to be authentic. You shouldn't just do it like for the sake of oh, I want to handle objection well, so I'm going to agree with everything that the person said to make her feel good. It it should really come from the from the stage of authenticity.、Mm-hmm. And if there's nothing to agree with, you can find different ways how to handle the objection.、Uh, about for example, you might feel sorry. That the person、um, cannot have、um, the, let's say, romantic dates, or it, it's not getting romantic dates with the loved person, and you might feel like, I, I, I feel really sorry, and I would feel the same way if I, if I also would have,、uh, would, would not have enough of these interactions with my partner, and I would completely agree that the Valentine's Day should be there, so you had at least one day in a year where you really feel loved. So, this is also a case, you know. If if you really if you feel that the other person is is saying the argument from a perspective of 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 sadness,、um, again, if we should align on the empathy empathy level, and you can say like you feel sorry for for that person experiencing that. If somebody lost money in a in in a scam and they are very skeptical for Bitcoin, one way to handle the objection is like you really feel like. You can say that you feel sorry for the loss of the person because you, if you really do, again, it, it should be a same thing again. It's not just like because Dusan said on the podcast. It should come from like if you really, or if it happened to you, you might even say again, the same thing happened to me. Just like I lost 150 euros in a in one transaction, right? It's it's nobody's、um, kind of. Uh, uh, it can happen to everybody, right? So these these are the. And this is what we teach on the handling objection session. Like, what are the ways how you can approach the objection? But you really need to first get into a level like, what is the emotion that the person is coming from? Is it sadness? Is it fear? Is it is it anger? Because you might even say like, I would be angry as well if my partner 
is not treating me well the whole year. And then basically it's just waiting for that one day. So I would feel angry as well about that. And this is, this is the way where you're getting the person emotionally on the same level because you really tap into what they feel at that moment. So the bet, you're going to be better at handling objections the more you try to guess and feel the emotion that the person is feeling at that moment. That's real. That's a really good note because you're you're suggesting us to handle communications not from a manipulative approach, um, and that's very important. And instead, we should communicate with compassion. We should communicate with integrity and authenticity. And you're the founder of an um, Amity H. What is Amity H? So Amity H is a is a Bitcoin company, and um, I like to say you know how we came up with the with the name first. Um, because it was like three years ago, I was sitting with my business partner, Gabriel, and we were just talking about what Bitcoin really means to us. And of course, we tackled uh, the issues like freedom. But then we talked deeper, like how does the world look like when we have freedom? And uh, we believe and we agree that it's a world where people cooperate on a much better level. Because if we have one standard of measuring value, if we if we have Bitcoin standard, uh, we can have much more efficient and, and higher cooperation on a global scale. And if the government, if the money is separated from the state and the government cannot print money, I believe we can have much more peaceful society because we the governments cannot uh, finance these endless and stupid wars. So, and there is this word amity in English, which is very archaic word, not very used today, but it translates into fellowship, friendship, cooperation, peace, and harmony. So there's all the words that basically told us what the Bitcoin means to us. And we see Bitcoin as a tool that can bring us to the era of amity, era of cooperation, the age of cooperation, the age of amity. So that's how we named the company Amity Age. And uh, and then we created this little character that you see in our logo, this, this young girl. And her name is Amity Nakamoto, the granddaughter of Satoshi. Because Satoshi disappeared in 2011. He left us with amazing tool, but there needs to be somebody to carry the torch. So uh, this Amity represents the young generation, the young blood, who's right now, they're the, all the educators, all the builders and, and, and developers who are pushing the, the tool uh, to make it successful. So we want Amity to be um, kind of the, this character, this avatar that's teaching people and, and taking them on this educational journey. So MTH is mostly, it's about education. It's about Bitcoin education. And our big mission is to welcome 100 million people in the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And uh, initially we had a goal of educating 100 million people about Bitcoin, but then we thought about it much more deeper and like, what does it mean to educate somebody? Like when is somebody educated on Bitcoin? I don't feel I'm I'm still educated enough. So it's it's an endless journey. It's the endless rabbit hole. But what we can do and what we want to strive to is to at least welcome them inside of the Bitcoin rabbit hole, inspire them to learn more about Bitcoin. And I imagine it as like Amity is opening the door to the rabbit hole, inviting people just come in, join us, and let's be the rabbit hole explorers together. Um, and this is kind of the way what we would like to achieve, because then a lot of people will set up on their own journey. They want to either go through podcasts or to videos or read articles. They will find their own way and own approach in the whole Bitcoin rabbit hole. But what we strive to is to at least give them the spark and welcome them in the rabbit hole. So this is kind of the big mission of, of MTH. And uh, we initially thought about how to finance the education because the education business is tough in terms of like you mostly depend depend on grants and donations. And I used to run and, and be part of a couple of NGOs before. And it's very tough if it depends on volunteers, if you need to go to companies and strive for money. So what we had the opportunity, luckily in Slovakia, that Gabriel's um, family member owned a power plant, a very small power plant, a biogas one. So it was one megawatt, nothing too huge. And we had the opportunity to start mining there. So it was very funny because the power plant was running on uh, cow shit and uh, 
and some corns and stuff. So we were literally turning shit into Bitcoin. So Bitcoin for us was a proper shitcoin. Shit yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we had like the shitcoin machine to create Bitcoin. And um, so this this is how we started three years ago. And, and this was kind of the first money inflow that we had. And thanks to it, we can st- we could start to develop the programs. We we are financing the, the education Roatan, our Bitcoin center. And of course, we want to figure out different revenue streams outside of mining as well to sustain the education activities. But luckily, we can pay the teachers. We can pay the the, the, uh, the people in the team that can do the education and they can spend time teaching themselves and then delivering the knowledge. And we don't we are not dependent on 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 kind of constantly going to companies and and maybe then changing our narrative because we need to please a sponsor. So we want to be very self-dependent. A couple of times we were offered some uh, referral fees for using some wallets where we get like, okay, the wallet's charging or the POS uh, uh, POS software is charging, let's say 2%. So we can get, I don't know, 1% of it or 0.5. But I refused all the time because we want to be objective here and we want to offer and um, recommend every every software that we feel like it's worth for that person, for that business owner. And we don't want to be biased by who's paying us the most. So thankfully to mining today, we can, we can do it, but we are also figuring out different revenue streams because the mining is getting uh, bigger and bigger. And it's like, it's being centralized in more like the bigger companies. So we don't know, maybe in five years, we're not going to be mining because we cannot sustain the pace of it. So, so yeah, METH is education company, um, mostly sustained currently by, by the mining incomes. It's interesting how you've picked the the character of the granddaughter of Satoshi Nakamoto living in the Amity age. What are some of the personalities that Satoshi's granddaughter would have? So the personality traits would be um, the empathy, definitely like uh, what we talked about with this uh, handling objections and of ability to listen, ability to to be empathetic and and, uh, knowing how to communicate with people in a way which is understandable uh, which have a room to listen to the others. Um, also being brave, uh, going the, the path that's not walked in or walked a lot. Um, so kind of like a, uh, setting up their own, uh, her own path, uh, being brave to talk about things that are not in the media that you don't regularly hear. So young, brave and, uh, empathetic, friendly, and um, open-minded. I couldn't make it to BDC Proc last year, but heard a lot about your pirate ship activation. Do you see any parallels between pirate culture and Bitcoin? And why did you choose to do that activation to represent Amity Age? Um, So pirate culture is somehow close to me uh, from various angles. You know, I'm I'm a sailor for 20 years. So ships and sailboats, it's something I love in general for many, many years. And and then the angle of pirates is very anti-establishment, going their own way. Of course, they were not a capitalist and a voluntarist in, a, in the first place. You know, they were stealing their, that was stuff that was not theirs. So I don't like that concept. <laughs> but um, so Roatan is one of the most famous pirate islands in the world, in the Caribbean. Um, you know, captain like pirates like Henry Morgan, which is on the bottle of uh, Captain Morgan Rum, uh, he had his own island here. Um, and this island is actually uh, still available and you can buy it with Bitcoin, which is pretty crazy. Um, and till this day, there is a wall built by Henry Morgan that's still on the island. You can go and snorkel around there. It's a beautiful, beautiful area. Um, there there st- still should be about three pirate treasures on the island hidden in the caves, which w- weren't found yet. So people tend to come here every year and search for them with metal detectors and just, you know, digging through the caves and, and forests. We actually managed to find a pirate glass from old rum bottles of, of pirates here in the in the woods. So, um, so this is kind of like the culture I'm very um, resonating with. And uh, and that's why we decided to to bring the ship um, from Caribbean and sail all the way to uh, to BTC Prague, but not in really. But uh, some people thought we really did sail with this ship that we brought to BTC Prague. <laughs> but um, so yeah, this is kind of the 
the braveness. And actually, there's a there's amazing book about if somebody's interested into piracy and the, the history of pirates and their economy, there's an amazing book called uh, Invisible Hook, which basically relates to the invisible hand of the market. The Invisible Hook basically speaks about the economy of pirates and how progressive thinking they were in, in those 17th and 18th, 18th century, that they were the first groups of people that allowed, you know, uh, black Caribs or, or people from Africa to have on the boats because they didn't care about their race. They cared about the performance. So they were very merit-based. Um, the hierarchy was very flat. So they were like, the captain can change a couple of times during a journey if people weren't happy about it. So they were comparing how a lot of people went to piracy, not because they, because they wanted to do bad stuff, but because they were treated super badly in the royal and the, and the Navy um, ships because they were like, you know, uh, pyramid structure where the captain was, he can do everything and everybody needed to obey. So there were a lot of uh, misbehavior, mistreatments, violence. So they were like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be on these merchant ships anymore. Um, and the people in the pirates, like they were treating themselves very fairly. And um, so this invisible hook book is marvelous and it can really open up the whole how the pirates operated and how many voluntaristic and libertarian principles they were living inside of the ship because they couldn't appeal to a court. They couldn't appeal to police. They were basically needing to sustain themselves and they couldn't rob from each other. So they were partnering up with different pirate ships as well. They were using this Jolly Roger flag as a marketing. They didn't want to do a lot of violence. They were just marketing themselves as a violent creatures because for them it was easy because suddenly when they pull up the flag, um, people were just giving up their, their, their arms and just handing them the loot without needing to do any violence. So they were good marketers. They were actually paying articles in media, in newspapers, just to say like, oh, you know, this pirate, you know, uh, it was brutal. They killed so many people and all of that, but it was all marketing. It, it didn't happen like that. So read the book. I completely recommend it. It's, it's wonderful. So this is why we connected like Roatan with piracy, with Bitcoin. And with Bitcoiners, we feel like, you know, pirates of a, of a financial system in a sense. So this is how everything connects together. And now you're you're living located in Prospera. It's a private city on the island of Roltan in Honduras. Uh, many Bitcoiners might have heard that Prospera, the city in Honduras, has adopted a Bitcoin standard. But most of us really have very little idea of what's going on there. Um, so what is your experience there? And now that we have Bitcoiners constantly thinking about living remotely and relocate, would you recommend Prospera as a destination? I would definitely re recommend that. And uh, more and more Bitcoiners are coming here. Uh, I met a guy, his name is Ben, Ben Gunn, amazing Bitcoiner. I met him in uh, El Salvador in November. He's a diver. So if you love diving, you're going to love Roatan. It's the second largest coral reef in the world. So the diving is marvelous here. And he came here and he's starting his own business in Prospera, his own diving business built on uh, Nostr and Bitcoin. So it's, it's a wonderful idea he has. And um, um, the CFO of Prospera, I met the, the previous year in adopting Bitcoin. He came here to Roatan uh, on my recommendation. He fell in love with the place. Uh, then he subscribed to Prospera newsletter. When the Prospera was searching for a CFO, he just sent me a message like, hey, Dusan, should I apply? I'm like, yes, man, do that. And he did. And he wrote me a couple of months after that, like, Dusan, we're going to be neighbors. I'm like, what? I got the job. So we have CFO who is like great Bitcoiner. He was, he's from Canada. He operated ATMs, Bitcoin ATMs in Canada. He's a builder. He built a Lightning Network beer tab. So there are more and more people coming in. Uh, the, the president of Prospera is a, is a huge Bitcoin maxi. So Bitcoiners are coming slowly in, which which I love. And um, it's really a place where you feel a lot of freedom. Uh, Prospera is very flexible in the regulations. So you can set up your own um, regulatory framework as well for your own company. Bitcoin is a unit of account. It's the first jurisdiction in the world that allowed it. So you can have all your books in Bitcoin. You don't need to account for dollars anymore. Um, you can accept Bitcoin. It's non-taxable as well. You can pay your taxes in Bitcoin. So imagine once every quarter, 
uh, I'm paying taxes. It's a territorial taxation. So you pay only taxes from what you uh, create and sell inside of Prospera. So if you have clients from outside, you don't need to pay taxes on it as a company. But I pay because we have the Bitcoin Academy and cafeteria here. So when I pay taxes, I just type in the amount of income I generated during that quarter. It uh, basically puts a 1% uh, out of it as an, as an income tax. And then it asks me, like, do you want to pay with credit card or Bitcoin? I just tap Bitcoin. I scan a code. Done. Two minutes. The taxes are solved. So it's it's working flawlessly. And I and I suddenly me coming back to Slovakia and interacting interacting with the legal system in Slovakia, I feel it, it feels so foreign. It feels so weird right now. Uh, once I know how it can work here, so this is for me like a, a place where I can we can experiment, a place where we really uh, bring can bring a lot of people here and just build it together so it's it really requires energy and time and we are doing it we started maybe one and a half years ago to really start uh, the community and they were like the community was not here where we came so we really start to push it and it takes time it, it cannot go fast but so i want to invite everybody who would like to contribute in any way to come here and to set up either a business to help with education help with anything set up business maybe not related to Bitcoin, but accept Bitcoin and just teach your customers to use it. We require everybody who loves um, who loves freedom to come. And there is a direct flight to Salvador. I love to travel to Salvador for that. So I feel like Salvador and Roatan are the places where great things can happen. You're from Slovakia. Can you teach me how to say fix the money, fix the world in Slovakian? Okay. So I will say it from perspective of uh, like, let's we, let's we fix the money and together we fix the world. Okay. So it's opravme peniaze, opravime svet. Oplavme vinese, oplavme svet. <laughs> close enough. Close enough. Good, Vivian. <laughs> how do we stay close to your work? Follow me on Twitter. That's where I post the most. Um, so you can follow me at... Uh, Dusan underscore Matuska or follow MITH, A-M-I-T-Y-A-G-E. Final notes for uh, the audience of uh, Live with Bitcoin. We are all educators for our closest communities, our friends, our family, our colleagues, even without us realizing that. Even without us standing on stages, hosting podcasts or doing videos and having YouTube channels, we are all Bitcoin educators for our closest people. So I want to encourage people to take the responsibility and just become these lighthouses of hope for their own um, closest friends and family and um, and just get better communicators. Um, uh, realize that all of us come from different perspectives and be authentic, be humble and be be empathetic to to each other. That's great. Thanks, Dusan, for uh, for the conversation. I've had a lot of fun, and thanks for the great insights and joining the show. Thank you very much, Vivian. I enjoyed it a lot. This is another episode of Light with Bitcoin. I'm your host, Vivian, and we'll see you in the next episode.